one of the things I enjoy about uh, just continuing on where Tom and Josh left off is I don't have to sit down and mull over which scripture I'm going to preach when I begin my month. I know what it is. And that's nice. Takes a little stress off. And it helps, I think, you as a congregation to know here's where we're going to be. I can continue to read ahead. I can, I know where we're at. Adds a little bit of stability as we are without a pastor right now. But we've been in 1 Peter now for two months, and I wanted to begin my month by sort of walking you back through Peter, 1 Peter, and refreshing your memory of what all we've looked at. Why, you know, I'm going to preach on 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, but what came before it? What is the setup? What... What happened prior? Because I honestly, I sat down and like, I, I don't remember a ton of details. I need to refresh my memory. So you turn to the beginning of 1 Peter, back to chapter 1. I just want to start out with that, like, who is this written to? Who, did, who is Peter writing to? And it tells us right there in the beginning. It says it's written to believers residing throughout the world, strangers in the world, God's elect. And different translations put it different ways. The New American Standard says residing as aliens. The NIV and the King James say strangers. The ESV says exiles. But they're scattered, and it lists all these different places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are all places throughout the Roman world. So people residing as strangers in this Roman world. They're strangers in the places that they call home. Some of these people might be there because they were driven there by persecution, but many of them, it is the places where they live, and they have come to Christ, and now they live in a place in which they call home, and yet they would be the minority. So they, they no longer seem to fit in. So once you make that transition from being a slave to sin to being a slave to Christ, you no longer fit in with those who are slaves to sin. You are now the odd man out. And it leads to persecution, which is one of the things that Peter addresses in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So these are people who are under persecution strangers in their own homes. He says, but why are they persecuted? It is not without a purpose. In verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So they are enduring hardship for Christ, for the glory of Christ. But he goes on, and so in the midst of being an alien who is persecuted in the minority, how do you live? How do you live in those circumstances? Verses 13 through 16, he gives, in chapter 1, he gives those instructions. He says, 
Therefore, be, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So he says, do not it's take action. Do not be complacent. There's this, I have this idea. You're either growing in holiness or you're growing in sinfulness. You have not arrived in your holiness. The Christian life is one of constant growth. It is constant action. And that is what Peter is spurring these fellow believers onto is take action. Don't become complacent. Continuing on chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, more of what he tells them, instructions. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, take action. Be killing sin. Be growing in your faith. Don't sit and say, woe is me, I'm suffering persecution. No, take action, be growing, be killing sin. So then he goes on and expounds on that. I like in verse 5, he says, you know, the result of that says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So believers become as living stones, just as Christ is the living stone. They are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. They are us as well. Continues on, verses 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? This, you have become the people of God. You've taken out of this pagan culture. Now you belong to God. So then we sort of get into more of the, the action section. And the NIV, actually, all of the little titles as you go through your Bible that are on top of that section are not inspired scripture. That's added in by the publisher, helps you find something you're looking for, gives you an overview of what it is. But the NIV says, the conduct of God's people in the midst of suffering. It's a good title for what follows after that, what the instructions are. That's where we are at in our study in chapter 3, the conduct of God's people in the midst of suffering. How are you to act? But he gives you the setup in verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So his instructions, abstain from sinful desires. That's so many of the things that 
have been addressed in this section are addressing the sinful desires. You think about Josh preached on all these different areas where submission is required. Submission, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Right? What's our natural inclination? I don't want to do that. I see the speed limit sign. I was like, oh, that's a suggestion. I don't need to submit to that, right? The president, I didn't vote for him, so I don't have to, I don't have to do that. It's our natural inclination, our, our sinful desire. But we are to abstain from those sinful desires. But you are to just submit, submit, submit. Second Peter, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, it's that every authority instituted among men. Verse 17, as he continued on there, he says, show proper respect to everyone. And that's in, that's in that section of being submissive to authority. Show them the proper respect. God has placed your leaders in a position of power. Show them respect. Show proper respect to everyone. And that continues on, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Show the king honor. Love your fellow believers. In the verse, that next section, verse 18, it is, slaves submit to masters. And, it, and it's not just the good ones. He says, even the harsh ones. And he, he says, why? He says, because Christ suffered for you as an example to follow. Verse 21, that says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Why do you submit? Because Christ submitted. And who is it that Christ submitted to? Yes, he submitted to those rulers and authorities who punished him unjustly, but he was ultimately submitting to the Father when he was doing those things. The, the idea of God the Father and God the Son is telling us the relationship between Jesus Christ and God the Father. It is one of submission. The Father submits to the Son. Christ submitted to God the Father, and he suffered because of that in order to purchase your salvation that leads up to where Josh preached last week, and in wives, submit to your husbands. And where it says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, in verse 1 of chapter 3. And he, he said this has the possible result of winning over, without words, the unbelieving husband to Christ. The good thing that comes from it. And it's not a new teaching that he's giving. This is... Read through the Old Testament. You'll see submission of their wives to their husbands is, is throughout there. This is not groundbreaking, unheard of before. He, he references there where Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah, at one point, refers to Abraham as her master. If you look in the NIV, if you look ESV or other translations, she actually calls him Lord. It's, it's a little L. It's not a big L. She refers to him as Lord, Genesis 18.12, which is it's an interesting thing to read through that section because that's the Lord Yahweh 
comes and tells Moses, this time when I come next year, your wife will have a child. And Sarah says to herself in her head, you know, will I in my old age bear my, give this pleasure to my Lord of having a son, right? So it's like a comment in, in her head of almost like, I, don't, I can't even believe this. So it's not a forced comment. It's not like Abraham is there observing her and she has to say Lord because he's there. It's like, no, this is her internal thought towards her husband. The other thing I was thinking of that came to mind was, you're probably familiar with the story of Queen Esther, who ultimately her actions lead to the Jews being saved from a huge massacre. But one of the, I was looking at that and thinking about it in regards to submission. And you can draw a couple lessons from that that I think are valuable in that she, she breaks the law when she goes before her husband, the king, and request, makes a request to him. Because the wife could only, nobody could go before the queen, king without him requesting. So she goes before him without a request which opens her up to death immediately. But she submits herself to that. She, I will submit to the law, but in this case, I will also break the law because it is just to break this law. There is a, it is unjust to follow the law in this instance. So I will break it, but I will submit myself to the consequences of that. So it's against the law, but she is willing to submit herself to the law and to her husband, the king. Because who would, who would give the sentence of death? It would be her husband, the king. She would have to submit to that. She is willing to do that. In her language, when she says, I'm going to go do this, is if I perish, I perish. She had full submission. There's no, she has counted the cost. She is willing to, to pay the price. That brings us to, I want to look at verse 7 today. Instructions to husbands, right? Last week, the wife's got it. Josh told you you need to submit, and I'm sure all of you were super happy to hear that. And you're like, I wish you would have gotten into verse 7 also, because there's some instructions for husbands there. But that's what I want to look at is verse 7. So that verse says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So it starts out, there's similar language here. It begins in that verse, it says, in the same way. And if you look back up at verse 1, it says, to wives, in the same way. So then you have to ask yourself, in the same way of what? What is this same way that you are, Peter's instructing? Right? And wives, he said, wives, submit to your husbands, even the unbelievers. He said earlier, slaves, submit to your masters, even the harsh ones. Everyone submit to every authority instituted among men unconditionally. But then he gave, he gave, in the midst of that, he gave the example that you are to follow, where it said, just as Jesus submitted to the Father's will, 
unconditionally he suffered and died. So in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, he gives us why you are to submit. Because Christ suffered for you. Christ submitted to the will of the Father. So in the same way. There's no conditions. It is unconditional. The instructions are unconditional in the same way that the prior ones were. So the instructions here are the, the default nature of the husband-wife relationship should be one of unconditional love. That is the like, that's the short of it, verse 7. I can stop there and be like, okay, there you go. Go home and what? love your wife unconditionally. But he, he goes into details. And he says, What's that, what does that look like? Especially in the midst of this culture that you live in. Because there's, there's things to be addressed. So husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. I'm preaching from the NIV. The ESV says, live with your wives in an understanding way. King James says, dwell with them according to knowledge. So be considerate. It's a hard thing for them to hear, probably. In the pagan world, the idea of considering the needs, the fears, or feelings of your wife would be a completely foreign concept. Like, be considerate of your wife. Think about her whenever you are doing something. Consider her feelings. Right? They're like, no, I, I'm the husband. I do what I want. Like, she's just here to serve me. Right? And it's, it's totally different. Be considerate as you live with your wives. <clears throat> the wives in this pagan time were often treated disrespectfully. They were viewed as property. And some of this is like, well, yeah, wives, husbands be considerate of your wives. Like, that's just kind of, that's pretty normal for the most part. You don't run into a ton of meathead husbands these days. There are, they're out there. But it's not as much the norm anymore. But it was more the norm. Wife was, was property. So some of this is like hard to even process to some extent. But at the same time, none of us are perfect at being considerate as we live with our wives. But he goes on in that husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner. ESV says, showing honor to them as a weaker vessel. And the New American Standard is pretty blunt. It says, as, someone, as with someone weaker since she is a woman. How many of you ladies like hearing that, like, hey, be nice to your wife because she's weaker. Treat her with respect because she's weaker, right? It probably makes you be like, oh, I don't like the way that sounds. As I read through commentaries, the overall consensus is this is in respect to their physical strength. How many of you ladies think you could beat your husband in an arm wrestling match? Right? You know my wife, don't you? <laughs> I'm sure there's some exceptions. But for the most part, 
you men are stronger than your wives. That's how God made us. That's how we have this whole debate within like transgenderism and athletics and like should guys be competing on women's teams, right? That's, it's, it's a pretty blatantly obvious thing. Men are stronger than women. And that's what he's appealing to. He's saying, treat her with respect as a weaker partner. Women are different than men. It is a good thing. It's how God made us. It wasn't his intention. Again, this goes against common practice at that time. You live in a world where might makes right. Who loses out? Women and children. Right? If, you, if, if everything is determined by who's the strongest, and if you're not the strongest, you lose. But this instruction is treat them with respect because they are weaker. Not because she could take you, not because she might sneak up behind you and knife you, but treat her with respect because she is weaker. Women would have been treated poorly at that time because they were weaker. But Christianity, Christ, turned that upside down. He changed it. And this also, it's easy to read this and say, well, women are weaker, right? Well, all of us are made in God's image, right? You may, women may be physically weaker, but they are not any less, any, there's no spiritual, intellectual, or moral inferiority implied there. Male and female are both created in the image of God. But the fact of the matter is, the woman is physically weaker than the man. And yet he is to treat her with respect, taking that into consideration. It, it reminded me of like, when I was in college, like as a freshman, we, uh, we had a group of friends and one of the guys was like, he was a linebacker on the football team. And anytime you interacted with him, if he was not like, if he wasn't winning, he would always be like, well, I'm bigger than you. <laughs> Especially me, because then I was like 30 pounds lighter. I was probably like 120 pounds soaking wet. And uh, he's like, I'm bigger than you. So what I say goes. Right? This is the mentality of the world then. It's like, I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. So I get my way. He says, Peter says, no, treat them with respect because they are weaker than you. But he goes on, so treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So that continuing the respect is given because she's weaker and also because she's an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. That phrase carries through. And I had read different things and one guy says, well, this just is because she is has the same gift of life. She's alive. And other, other guys say, no, it's because she is 
a fellow heir to Christ. She is a believer with you. Um, I lean towards it being because the wife is also a believer. Um, because I don't see the point in pointing out that while well, your wife is alive, so you need to respect her. Like, well, duh. Um, but because she is your fellow believer. And so then that sort of opens up an interesting thing where you say, well, it's assumed with the husband that the wife is a believer, but if I, if I remember right, when Josh talked last week, the wife was to be submissive to her husband that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, right? The wife was to be submissive in, a, in hopes that it would contribute to his coming to know Christ. In the case of the husband, he is to show her respect because she is a fellow believer, right? And that in the ancient world, it is expected that whatever religion the husband had, the wife would follow suit. She would have the same religion as him. She would come along. Not the case for if the wife comes to a different religion, husband does his own thing. But at that time, the wife would almost always follow. And I even I was remembering statistics I had heard about like it is the statistic that you hear quoted is that if a husband is actively engaged in church, 93% of the time the family will be actively engaged as well. And then the the contrary statistic is that if a wife is actively engaged in church, it's 17% of the time that the rest of the family is engaged. I can't find any citations anywhere for that, so I don't know that I trust the, the, the statistics behind it. But we do know God has appointed the man to be the leader of the household. And so when the man takes up a leadership role and says, we are doing this thing, we are going to church, the family follows. And you ladies whose husbands have resisted and not wanted to be involved, you know how hard it is, right? And your kids say, well, dad's not doing it. Why do I have to do it? Right? So there's, there's something there, even in our modern times. But I think this points towards, in their time, when the husband became a believer, the wife would follow suit. But he's to be respectful of her because she is a fellow believer. Heir with you of the gracious gift of life. But he says, he concludes this verse by saying, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Right? Do these things. Be considerate as you live with your wife's. Treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you with the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And so when we are out of step with God's design for our marriages, it has a negative effect on our prayer life. It, has a, it drives a wedge between us and God. When, you, when something in your life is not right with God, it affects your relationship with God. It hinders your prayers. Isaiah 59, verse 2, which is a passage that 
talks of the it's sin, confession, rege- redemption. But it talks about, it says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Right? So sin drives a wedge between you and God. Treating your wife poorly drives a wedge between you and God. It causes strife. Has a negative effect. Hinders your prayers. So, the brief of this verse, husbands love your wives. Right? And ladies, last week you got told to submit a bunch. So I'm going to say, husbands, submit to Christ and love your wife. Right? That's the instruction. Submit to Christ. Love your wife. And it's interesting thinking through this and thinking through this pagan world that they lived in, right? That's the opening of First Peter talked about how they're scattered. They are strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, throughout the Roman world. Christ changes things. He changes how husbands and wives interact with each other. And in the pagan world of Peter's day, Christian marriage was totally different from the norm of what they had. All these instructions, you read these, you're like, well, it sounds pretty normal, right? That's, you know, that's, how you should be, that's how you should be treated in a marriage, right? This would have been groundbreaking. <laughs> would have been totally out of character at that time. Christ has affected the world around us in such a way that we can look at these things and say, that's pretty normal. That seems like it should be expected. And at that time, it was not. But Christ has changed. Christ changes things. So then, thinking back to how he began this section in First Peter two verses eleven and twelve, there he addresses sinful desires at war against your soul. I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So then I just want to go back through that same verse 7 and just flip it, right? What's it it mean if you do it backwards, right? So being inconsiderate of your wife, paying no regard to her thoughts, feelings, or emotions, right? That is the sinful action, being inconsiderate. So the husband is the head of the household, right? We, we tend to have more of an issue in our day where men tend to be passive, where the husband is passive and he says, honey, just whatever you want to do. Like, I, I don't want to have another fight, right? But the husband is to be the head of the household. And that is assumed here. He is to lead. And good leaders value the input of those whom they are leading. And good leaders also take responsibility, Right? So you end up with this whole, you're talking about submission, we're talking about husbands are to interact with wives. And so you're the husband and you make a decision based on input from your wife, right? You, you say, okay, I'm going to lead, but I, this thing, I want to I discuss it with my wife. 
and she talks and she thinks differently than you, but and you say, well, you know, that's that's a good idea. We should we should do that. That's what we're going to do. And let's say it doesn't go well, right? You'd make this decision based on your wife's input, and it, it blows up in your face, right? So then, how do you how do you react to this? Like, well, that was hers. Like, I don't put that on her. No. You are the leader. You are still responsible. You you took that input and you ran with it. It is, you are responsible. You don't get to blame her for the outcome. You get to fully take that on yourself, right? Be considerate of your wife as you lead her. So the other, going backwards, right? Respect her as the weaker partner would be to be disrespectful of her because she is the weaker partner. This exercising of domineering authority over her because you are bigger and stronger than her. An attitude of, I can do whatever I want to because she can't stop me. I'm bigger than her, I'm stronger than her. The instructions are, you treat her with respect because she is weaker than you. Your wife should feel security in your strength and not fear in it. Your strength should be used to be her protector, her provider. It should be a resource for your wife, not a source of fear for her. You treat her with respect because she is weaker than you. And just to reiterate, Christ changes things, right? Marriage is a better institution because of Christ. He change the way the world treats marriage. We have come, we have expectations of what is normal. They're based out of scripture because Christ has changed that. Marriage is better because of Christ. So husbands, submit to Christ and love your wife. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study the scriptures and share what is contained. Help the husbands here to, to love their wives well, Lord, to be considerate of them, to be respectful of them, to lead them well. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn in your hymnals to page 493, and while we're doing that, um, Travis and Greg, if you want to come up and set up for communion. We'll sing the three verses, 493. My life, my love, I give to thee, the Lamb of God who died for me. Oh, may I ever faithful be, my Savior and my God. I live for him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. I live for him who died for me, my Savior and my God. I now believe thou dost receive, for thou hast died that I might live. Now henceforth I'll trust in Thee, my Savior and my God.
I'll live for him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. I'll live for him who died for me, my Savior and my God. Oh, thou who died on Calvary to save my soul and make me free. I'll consecrate my life to Thee, my Savior and my God. I'll live for Him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. I'll live for Him who died for me, my Savior and my God. communion this morning. Again, it's a time to remember the Lord's death until he does return. It's to remember as you are weary and kind of beaten down by your own sin um, that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. And he has taken that upon himself and had his body broken and his blood shed for sinners. Um, but also that this is offered to your friends and to your family and to your enemies. the same thing that Hopefully they at some point will come and understand that Christ's body and his blood was shed to save their sins as well. And that you can offer to them uh, the same thing that we received today. Um, Peter just gives a reminder to the people about the Lord's Supper. In verse 23 of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which was for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
So again, just read this real quick. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, and took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said in verse 25, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup and he said this, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we just thank you for your sacrifice for sinners, not for good people, not for people who are trying hard, but for people who know they have no hope without you. For people who find their rest in you, their peace in you, their righteousness only in you. The only perfect sacrifice, the only righteous one who kept all the laws, who was without sin and did not deserve to die. Instead, you submitted yourself to the will of the Father and you suffered and bled for sinners. Not for good people, but for those who did not deserve it. So you would be glorified for all eternity in Christ's name. Amen. You're out of
Thank you.